Welcome back. This is the uh, Fathoms crew taking over the IEA podcast. We are very excited to be here with you all. Um, today, we have, for this interview, we have a special guest, Belinda Gore, uh, and Lee is going to take over here for a, a brief introduction. Thanks, Abram. I'm here with Belinda Gore today, who is one of my teachers and an, um, an Enneagram presenter at the conference this weekend and an author and a teacher, and I could go on and on, um, but I'll get us to our conversation with Belinda without further ado. Thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So we're talking with um, different presenters, teachers, people in the Enneagram community, and wondering if you could just um, give us and our listeners a small snapshot into how you came into the Enneagram community or some of your experience. I know it's a very rich and Mm -hmm. long history with the Enneagram. Thank you. I'll say, first of all, it's such a treat to do a podcast with real people in the room. (laughs) I've been on Zoom for so many years now, and it's like, wow, this is great. Um, I first heard about the Enneagram right after Helen Palmer's first book, The Enneagram, Mm -hmm. came out. Uh, There was an article in Yoga Journal, however long ago that was, that had to have been in the late 80s. I would imagine. A friend of mine said she had just read a book by a Jesuit seminarian, and she thought I'd be interested in it, and I'd heard of the Enneagram, right? And he was doing a workshop in eastern Pennsylvania. I live in central Ohio. Would we like to drive together? So that was Don Riso. And he and Russ Hudson had been teaching together for maybe six months, Mm. and there were nine people in this little workshop at a retreat center. And I was hooked immediately, Mm. partly because they talked about cultures that were personality cultures, and so we were interested in personality, but also earlier cultures that were not so interested in personality, and that was my interest. I've done work with the artwork of indigenous people around the world. It's Mm. a different story. Mm. I loved them, and so I started learning from them, and that was 1990. Mm. So I came to Stanford in 1994 when Helen and David Daniels organized a gathering that they thought would be maybe a couple of hundred people, and I think there were about a thousand people at Stanford. It was amazing. And so um, I'm grateful in a way that I got to sort of grow up with the Enneagram. I discovered things because Don and Russ were discovering things. I remember driving back once across Pennsylvania, and um, I spent the entire trip sorting out some of the material they were saying that then became what I was teaching. I'm a psychologist, and for a while I was just teaching continuing education for psychotherapists because it's like, wow, how can you work with clients without understanding this diversity instead Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. the idea that there's a common way in which people function. Mm -hmm. No, there isn't. And so 
obviously I could go on and on, but that's sort of mm -hmm. how I come to be where I am today. Uh, I was I joined the IEA as soon it was as it was formed. I was a board member for three years. I chaired the conference for two years, and I have great respect for what it takes to bring together a group of people. But it really is very exciting to yeah. see how the IEA is becoming more diverse and younger and lots of good things. You said you, you're, you're a psych psychologist, yes. yes? And were you a psychologist before you knew the Enneagram? Or? Yes. Okay, got it. And when you encountered the Enneagram, was it just, was it light bulb? Was there suspicion? What was that? What was that process like? I've always been a little woo woo. So, <laughs> okay, you know, okay. I, I'm not so skeptical about anything that resonates with me. When I was a teenager, I studied astrology because I thought it was a really cool way to understand how people are different. And I think that was part of my draw in being a psychologist, in being curious about how we're all different. I come, my parents were both middle children from very large farm families who grew up during the Depression. Mm -hmm. And then they moved to Ohio, which was a very different culture. I mean, it, you wouldn't think so, but the Ohio River is a sort of a demarcation culturally. And I think I've always been interested in what my roots were like. I mean, I'd go to my grandmother's and there was no running water, you know, and then I'd come back to go to school with people whose parents played tennis and golf. Mm -hmm. And it was mm -hmm. a big contrast. So I've been curious about how we're similar and how we're different mm -hmm. most of my mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah. And you're presenting at this conference this yes. year, correct? What is your session about? What are, what are you hoping that attendees leave that session with? I have been teaching about object relations and the Enneagram for about 10 years now. I'm also part of the Diamond Heart or Diamond Approach teachings, mm -hmm. have been for 17 years. One of my friends, Diana Redmond, who is here, 10, 11 years ago, because object relations are spoken of in the Diamond Heart work. And she said, Belinda, I don't really get what object relations is about to mm -hmm. you. And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> but um, because I identify with type three, my orientation was to just find out about it. Don and Russ had taught about very basic model for understanding object relations. And so I started building on that. And I was doing more coaching, teaching coaches and less psychotherapy. But nevertheless, as always, my clients and my students were the ones who helped me deepen my understanding about object relations. And it's basically about relationships. So it's some experiential tools for dealing with how do we recognize the presence of object relations in our lives and in our relationships and how can we pull back from automatic behavior mm. is and there can, a way to unpack that a little bit more yes what thank object you relations yes yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> object relations theory 
um, came about in the 40s and 50s, primarily. Psychodynamic uh, neo-Freudian theorists were interested in how does personality develop so that as you talk about or try to deal with personalities that were more dysfunctional, what's, how do you pull this apart and understand what's out of balance? So the basic idea in object relations is that our personalities develop out of self relating to other through affect or emotion. And that as soon as we're born and maybe before, we start developing a sense of who we are because of our emotional experiences interacting with others. And that there are three categories of archetypal others, the archetypal nurturer or mother, the archetypal protector or father, and I think the archetypal home or family that is the larger group we belong to. So there are three others, three primary groups of others. And then the teaching I learned was there are three styles of affect. And one style is attachment. <laughs> My friend asked me to use a different word and it's misguided hope. And it, wow. it just means I find somebody who provides what I need, and I have the misguided hope that if I do what you want, I'll be okay. The next one is frustration, which is I believe you've got what I want, but you keep being elusive and I keep chasing <laughs> something that I never seem to be able to get. And the third category is rejection, which is you're giving me something and then you stop or do something that hurts me. Mm. And so I feel rejected by you and I respond to you by rejecting you. Mm. And we've got three primary others, three styles of dominant affect. So in that grid, each of the nine types has a characteristic pattern that explains our style of operating. Could I ask a quick question here about that? That was a lot of great information. Um, but when you say that we have a dominant affect, um, does that mean that we have secondary or tertiary affects as well? It means we have all of them, but okay. we rely on one particularly. A little like we're oriented toward the the um, instinctual variants. Mm -hmm. But think about it. In everyday life, there's something we like, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, I like coffee, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. but yeah. <laughs> so does Lynn's. <laughs> um, and so I want to make sure I have my supply of coffee. I'm attached to the pleasure that coffee gives me. But then I get frustrated because some coffee's better than others. And I've had one really good cup of coffee. 
and I never can seem to find it. And that's one version of frustration. Another version is I keep spilling it, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, that's why I always just bring my own coffee stuff. That's so right. It's, it's guaranteed. <laughs> no frustration. Right, right. <laughs> Unless you keep spilling it. Unless you keep that's spilling right. it. Yes. Which has happened Which, as well. yes. <laughs> but then maybe the coffee gives me acid reflux and I don't like coffee anymore. I rejected it because it's rejected me. Now, that's highly oversimplified, <laughs> but it just helps us see yeah. that there is a cycle of attraction, frustration, and rejection all the time, every day with everything, mm. people and things. You we were, all as, took a coffee break. It <laughs> has a nice sip of coffee there. <laughs> Um, I was going to ask you, when, where along the way um, did someone initially take the Enneagram types uh, in object relations? Was that um, Don Richard Riso and Russ Hudson? or I think they learned it. They were involved in the diamond heart work, the diamond approach okay. work, very soon after they got together. Russ was involved with the Gurdjieffin work in New York, and Don was for a little while. But... Um, I wonder if they learned it from Hamid Ali or A.H. Almas, mm -hmm. whose mm -hmm. writings are foundational. He's the primary teacher of uh, the Diamond Approach. Um, and you know, I don't really know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I, I learned it from Don and Russ. I learned that matrix yeah. from them. Yeah. It seems as though, you know, I know, I'm sure you're, you're, very familiar with just the sort of different groupings, right, in the Enneagram, like the different triadic groupings. Yes. This seems to be probably one of the least known. Yes. But potentially the most important, I would say, because it seems like uh, like the dominant affect that is supporting or producing the management systems in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. I so think, I'm, I'm just curious as to, is it because it's less understood? Is it, but it seems like we need to, I'm glad you have a book coming out of it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I wrote the book because I started teaching first mm -hmm. and people, students would say, well, what can I read? And I said, I don't know. There, I mean, there are the classic object relations theorists and I mean, I'm trained as a psychologist, and it's dense, hard going trying to read that material. I have some of those books at home, and I was <laughs> yeah. going to ask you, should I just, I'm, I think I just might read yours, because the other ones at home are like that thick. Yes, yeah. and, and they're based on psychopathology, too, mm -hmm. which doesn't mm -hmm. always inform us well mm -hmm. about how we can get on with our daily lives. Yeah, can, yeah. You, can you define psychopathology? Yes. Um, Pathology is just when things go wrong, what's mm -hmm. pathological, and psychopathology is what goes wrong in the psyche or the personality, if you will. And so the theorists were working with adults and children who were not functioning well. You know, they had some kind of mental illness, and they wanted to understand if we're going to treat the mental illness, we have to understand why is there a, an illness or disease or malfunction. So it was just an attempt to say, gosh, 
this personality, what went wrong. And so the beginnings then of looking at structuring and this fundamental idea that this personality that I have, that each of you have, is built from our first ability to experience mm -hmm. on thousands and thousands of interactions that give us a positive experience, a frustrating experience, a rejecting experience, and it builds our sense of self. Uh, I like to use Dan Siegel's terminology in the prefrontal mm -hmm. cortex. We have what he calls me maps. I have a map of who I think I am. We might call it our self-image. And I have you maps, which are ideas about who you are, but they're not usually based on my spending time with you to discover how you're put together. Mm -hmm. It's from an object relations point of view, I recognize a pattern that I've experienced before. So if you identify with type nine, there are things about you that I may pick up and I go, oh, he's da 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 da. I'm projecting onto you my past experiences with people who have some similar characteristics, but I'm not getting to know you at all. Mm -hmm. You're a character in my story. Mm. Right. And that's what I'm trying to help unpack as we think about ourselves in relationship. It's who is that other person? And how have you triggered me so that I believe you're doing this or that to me or with me? And it's not who you are. I've made up the story, mm -hmm. and I'm playing out the story, and you're just props. Mm. Right. So if I hear you correctly, a lot of our relational conflicts have to do with us replaying what happened to us back when we first began our object relating. Yes. Yeah. So if I accuse you of something, well, then that's going to trigger your object relation patterns, mm -hmm. and you're going to react to me as though I were somebody you've reacted to in the past. And we're dancing around neither of us feeling seen or heard. Mm -hmm. And that happens, don't we know, mm -hmm. in relationships mm -hmm. all the time. Can you tell us when those object relation patterns begin in human development? Like very, very early? From the very beginning. Right. Uh, Margaret Mahler was in the did her research in the seventies and was looking at infants, mm -hmm. and um, certainly we see even in research with also attachment theory, very very young children start to show evidence of differentiated patterns of relating to their caregivers or just the world at large. You yeah. know. There's some babies who are irritated all the time and others who are just chill. Mm -hmm. And you just talked about attachment theory. Mm -hmm. Just for the listeners, could you draw a distinction between the attachment that you were talking about, the attachment affect and attachment theory? Yes. Attachment theory is based on the research of Ainsworth. And she identified that when children have 
confidence in their caretakers. It's called a secure attachment. And so they're more relaxed. If the caretakers are create situations in which the child feels insecure, there's either the avoidant pattern in that it's sort of an inaccessibility or an anxious pattern. And then later there were researchers who talked about the disordered or disorganized pattern. But in attachment theory, it's either secure attachment or insecure attachment, gradients, of course, along the way. The attachment types, the, the three types, three, six, and nine, that have as their primary structural foundation, and a, that if you remember I talked about, it's like you've got something I like and I want to figure out how to keep you providing that for me, believing you're the source of it. Mm -hmm. right. The attachment is thinking something outside myself has what I need and I have to figure out how to keep getting it. So it's not, if I'm an attachment type, that doesn't mean I have secure attachment. Right. I could be operating in a very unhealthy yeah. way yeah. doing exactly that. So they're just completely different models. They are completely yeah. different models. Would you say there's any level of advantage to that sort of striving to, to, to discover something outside of yourself that could help inform who mm. you are as a person? Well, when you think about when we're infants, we are totally helpless, mm -hmm. right? So what we need is outside ourselves. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we do thrive when we can figure out how to communicate, you know, my diaper's wet or I'm hungry or I'm cold, you know. So as personalities build, we start out being reinforced with the notion that what we need is outside ourselves. If we are not assisted in learning that the ultimate source is something that we access internally through a source bigger than our egos, then we keep trying to get the world to fill up our needs and uh, almost talks about the theory of holes. You know, we have all these holes that we want to get filled. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about ours being a consumer society, we're just trying to find the stuff that'll fill up the holes. Mm -hmm. And what we have to learn is to be with the holes so that we can go deeper than the hole itself to find what's really already available to us inwardly. Mm -hmm. So ideally, what would be the process or the the process of, of a child growing up and transitioning into, um, oh, I have, I have, I can get what I need through my own, through the own means without needing someone else to do it for me. What's an ideal situation in which that would happen? Well, perversely enough, it seems as though we human beings are designed to develop egos, mm -hmm. personalities. Children aren't ready to discover their own internal access mm -hmm. to the larger source. And so the ideal situation is that children are loved and that 
they get honest responses to their questions mm. and their differences are normalized. Mm. But we're not ready to work on these egos that we've cultivated until, I mean, at least, you know, the prefrontal cortex doesn't fully develop until we're the, our early mid-20s. Which should be the legal age for marriage, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. For that very reason. Wow. <laughs> a lot of things. Yes, right? for a lot of things. Yes. <laughs> right. Childbirth. Right. You know, right. it's really hard in our culture to think about trying to raise a child before you fully understand who you are and what the world's about. That's a different topic, but <laughs> I, I, have podcast. A soap, I have a soapbox over there. Yeah. I'll, I'll be happy to get on that later. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm curious, what would be the most, uh, what have you discovered to be the most common misconception about object relations or how it's applied to the Enneagram? What, what have you seen, maybe even type specific, of how people just, just kind of miss it a little bit? The biggest thing is that people hear object relations and they glaze over. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. like that's too complicated. Mm -hmm. And uh, especially in putting together a book title, you know, is the fact, uh, the title is Finding Freedom because freedom is something that almost everybody longs for. But uh, I don't even remember. It's understanding your relationships <laughs> using object relations in the Enneagram. You know, it takes a while to get a book title together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which version yeah. did we settle on here? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that for a lot of people, I mean, in the larger book market, who's going to look at object relations and go, oh, yeah, I want to learn about that? It's that it's not widely understood as something accessible and valuable mm. to utilize in terms of understanding ourselves and each other. Mm -hmm. If you could sum up, um, what, so finding freedom, finding freedom to do what or to be what? To respond rather than react. That's right. You know, the, the freedom to be in this moment in myself and discern my experience and respond to you rather than just having a reaction because you've triggered something or a habit pattern. I mean, in the Enneagram, we call it a fixation. If my fixation is triggered, if my passion or vice is triggered, then I'm just reacting. And I've lost access to myself, my deeper self, but I've lost access to you too, because I'm making up a story about who you are. Mm -hmm. um, I think that one of the things, um, Seth, you mentioned triads, like the different triadic relationships in the Enneagram. Um, and the more and more I learn personally, it's just like, oh, here's another way to look at it. It's all pointing toward similar material, right? To be, to be mm -hmm. able to see ourselves more clearly, to develop the capacity to um, pause and stay with something long enough to mm. make an objective or more objective mm. uh, response instead of a reaction. And object relations, I think, really points to relationships so much, but also our relationships with ourself, yes. right? Mm -hmm. To recognize ourself. Um, 
But for instance, one of the things we discovered is the three types that have a problematic relationship with the nurturing figure of the mother are three, seven, and eight. What do we know about three, seven, and eight? Those are called the assertive or initiator or whatever, assertive types. What does that mean? As it relates to how we look at nurturing, it's an issue with the heart center. And the three types that have issues with the protecting figure, which are six, one, and two, are all the dutiful or cooperator types that have difficulty accessing their own sense of protection and guidance. So the head center is the least available, least um, matured. The family-oriented types, which are nine, four, and five, all have difficulty being embodied, that the belly center is the least developed. And so I love that the matrix then relates to the other, another system of uh, a triadic look at mm-hmm. the Enneagram. Absolutely. I do have a question regarding uh, kind of that pattern within the framework with the nurturing and the protective, or what was the language you used? The third one is the family, family yeah. which is... Is that kind of both of them then? Well, no. No. It's okay. a little more. I've, I've heard of that. I yeah, know. I'm glad you're... you're I know. It. Yeah, cool. Um, regularly in classes, people say, well, Russ says, you know. Right. <laughs> sure. And I did learn from Russ and Don that, that it is mother-father and the mother-father unit. But... For most children, you grow up with something that's larger than these two people. There's a gestalt that we grow up in. It's the home, the house, the siblings or extended family. There's a sense of my tribe, and that's bigger than just the mother and the father together. Yeah, and um, is it the chicken or the egg? Then when it comes, usually that with that question, then they're really yeah, both, both. right? But, yes. um, so if I have a sensitivity, however that comes um, toward developing in this type, with this type structure, well, did that, is that what causes me to have a sensitivity toward one of these primary or caregivers or or is it because my father was, didn't show up for me growing up and now I have more of a sensitivity in that way? You know what I, which, Well, what's yeah. interesting is think about families in which there are maybe three or four siblings. And those three or four siblings are three or four different types. And so from an object relations perspective, what that not just implies, what that reveals is Maybe I had a father who left the family when I was three years old. Some children will find another father figure. Mm. Others will resent the father. Others will take on the father role themselves. Mm. And so it's not just what the parent does, but I think the predisposition based on neurological wiring to interpret events in a certain way. 
So it's, I always have to calm down parents who say, oh my gosh, I'm making my child into a, you know, fill in the blank. And it's, no, your child is already predisposed to perceiving you in a certain way. But the environment can definitely reinforce that perception, right? Yes, definitely. So I'm a twin Mm -hmm. and we grew up with the same environment, but my twin remembers things very differently and he's a four i'm a nine (laughs) yes but we were both rather reserved yes (laughs) just in different ways yeah Yeah. and your parents um are either of them nine or four uh my dad is a nine Uh mom is a two okay um highly eccentric too (laughs) (laughs) just just saying right yeah Yeah. (laughs) right yeah um So, yes, you and your twin experienced your sense of belonging. You you would, we would say, have an inclination to experience belonging in that family, but believing that you have to modify yourself, subdue or suppress yourself to not create too much conflict in order to be adaptive in that family, whereas your your twin, who's a four, would tend to interpret that as, I don't belong here. They don't get me. You know, there must be a family someplace who understands the kind of person I am, but I'm unique and different from this family group. And we grew up in a, getting a little personal here, we grew up in a rather intense or chaotic or conflictual home. Yeah. So that stuff was intensified for yes. us. Yeah. Yes. And then, of course, your uh, instinctual variant will, your natural tendency, your your neurological wiring will be to respond to that also in certain ways. And I think about in our type structures, we, I, I like to teach about it as our coping strategies. You know, we're dealing with environments that are less than perfect. What do I have to do to feel like I'm okay? Mm. And so we implement our tendencies to do things that we do what we naturally probably do a little more easily. I imagine it's it's important to keep in mind the individual experience. Like every every nine is not going to have that experience or interpret the same way. Um, so to being careful not to make these attachment styles reductionary. Yes. And it's probably more important. Would you say it's more important to like, okay, let's, let's figure out what attachment style you are and let's work with that. We can talk about the history, but the, the causal Mm. mechanism, interesting, but really what we need to work on is the actual, uh, working through Mm. that emotional Mm. affect. I like to talk about it as our well, our Enneagram patterns, but certainly our object relation patterns are like a blueprint for a house. But our individual genetic makeup, family, uh, social environment are the building materials. Mm -hmm. And so we may both have house plans for split-level houses, (laughs) (laughs) but that doesn't mean our houses are going to look exactly the same. Um, And if I'm raised in an environment in which there are limited resources, I'm not going to have as secure a house Mm -hmm. because the building materials aren't so good. 
Right. Like it's more, there's a structural issue here that we need to address. At this point, it doesn't matter how it got there. We just need to yes. ad- address that and fix that. Um, and it's more about the structural issue is causing, I don't, I don't like that word causing, is giving you a tendency mm-hmm. to interpret things in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And we want to examine your interpretation by saying you're likely to interpret things in this way. Is this how you're interpreting this? Gosh, there might be other ways for you to interpret it that might be closer to what's really yeah. going on. Impossible. No, yeah. absolutely um, not. Could I ask a clarifying question? Um, for I know this is a big topic, and again, like we've said, one that there's maybe less material about. Mm-hmm. But when we're talking about um, the maternal figure or the mothering and the fathering and the protective and the family, um, while sometimes that may have crossover with actual relationships mm-hmm. or humans, you really talk about them as a sort of archetypal yes. um, relationship. So yeah. Your nurturing, your primary nurturing figure may have been a grandfather. You know, that may have been the person you turned to for for most of the nurturing that you got. Protecting figures might be uh, the biological mother, and especially in single-parent families, um, the single parent often can't provide all of it. There are other people. Mm-hmm. So um, we don't want to get caught up in gender roles. Right. We don't want to get caught up in, you know, this, oh, nurturers are only women and protectors are only men. But the archetype is sort of a collective tendency Mm -hmm. to both experience and express things in certain ways. And we know biologically women have a little more oxytocin than men do. And so many women tend to be more nurturing than many men tend to be. Mm-hmm. But that's a really big generalization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So would the, would the, just basically speaking, would the three archetypal energies be nurturing, protecting, and belonging? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah. So as long as, as, long as I'm hearing things correctly, um, from things that I've read, but also from, you know, real life experience, um, being married for 13 years and having just other re- regular relationships, right? Mm-hmm. I think what I'm hearing you say is that we, re- we reenact what needs completed. Um, so we keep playing out old wounds in today's relationships. Yes. And object relations, working with them is a way to heal wounds from the past so that we don't keep replaying them in today's relationship. So I'm actually relating with you, Mm -hmm. not... Yes. Yeah. So there are really two parts to what you're identifying. One is structure, you know, our blueprints. How is my personality built? And therefore, what are my tendencies going to be? But the second part is what triggers me? And I can get triggered in any of those nine cells in the matrix, (laughs) you know. So it's not just as a three, I have an attachment to the nurturing figure. 
I can get triggered in any variety of ways. So one of the exercises we'll do in the presentation, and it's include, I included 27 exercises in the book because as a psychologist, I believe if you don't have an opportunity to experience it, it's kind of intellectual and we don't really embody it. But how do I know I'm triggered? And what is it that's triggering me? Mm-hmm. Most of us can pretty well identify when we're triggered. <laughs> you know, we're mad, we're reactive, we're afraid, we want to go into hiding. You know, something does, feels like we need to fix something. But what the nature of the trigger is, I have a little exercise that helps you identify if... Lindsay's triggering me, what is it about her right now, about what she's doing and how I'm responding to her that's activating that old pattern? So then I can figure out, oh, you remind me of my Aunt Marjorie, and mm-hmm. she right. always, Lindsay. you know. Is this an exercise we could try? Sure. We can't do all of you all at the same time. Oh no, that was the so, improv. Who's got something? Do you need that me to be triggered? Aunt Marjorie? Stuff? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. Somebody, somebody that's what? Sorry. Um, some some situation, some person that's triggering you right now, today, that you got a little annoyed about, Large or groups of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we could do that. It'll work better if we talk about a person. Hmm. Anybody got, have a person you've interacted with today that kind of... <laughs> that's not in the room? <laughs> <Maybe. That's>, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can ask one of us to leave the room for yeah. a second. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Creek, would you mind? Yeah, 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 no. yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't think of well, anything. Let me, let me play with Aunt Marjorie. Sure, yeah. okay. great. that's great. My Aunt Marjorie was a force to be reckoned with. You don't mm. really remind me of her, but <laughs> something must have that made me think of her. She was... Uh, my mother was number five of ten kids, but Aunt Marjorie was number three. So she was one of the older ones. She was an eight. Um, And when their father died, when my mother was in her 20s, Marjorie's the one who sort of took over being the father of the family. Mm. So she was strong. She was no-nonsense. But... Of course, she grew up in an Appalachian culture, so she wasn't going to look like um, somebody who grew up in the Bronx. She grew up in northern Kentucky. So I would describe her, this is the exercise, five adjectives that describe Aunt Mar- that describe, no, that describe you. Oh, this is going to be hard. But if I described you as attractive, smart, powerful, a little scary, and decisive. And that I feel intimidated, in awe, uh, wanting to please. I can't come up with any more right Mm -hmm. now. Then it's like, oh, what's going on here? Mm. When I was a little girl, I really looked up to Aunt Marjorie, who was a beautician, by the way, which was curious. (laughs) Um, But I was a little afraid of her. 
And so if I'm thinking you're like Aunt Marjorie, I'm going to look up to you but be a little afraid of you, Mm -hmm. which might cause me to relate to you with a little bit of distance. And you're sitting there going, why is she doing that? Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure. You know, because I'm not paying attention. Yeah. Because I'm not recognizing the trigger right away. Mm -hmm. Does that absolutely Marjorie? For sure. Yeah. I'm always intimidated by Lindsay. I am too. (laughs) You hit the nail on the head, Belinda. (laughs) I am a little scary. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. That makes so much sense because it brings uh, awareness to my reactivity that I have no idea where it's coming from. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And so the reactivity is the trigger. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then you can use the exercise to unpack that. That's great. Yeah. Thank you so much this for that. so wonderful. Um, where can people find you, connect with you, buy your book, yes. all those things? Well, I'm sending cards. I, I, I have these uh, promo <laughs> cards that have a little QR code, but it goes to my mailing list. But I can be reached at Belinda Gore at hotmail.com. Hotmail. I mean, how old wow. is that? Right? <laughs> we, are we live for it yeah. to the hotmail. I've, that is wonderful. Don't I've ever change got it. A Vintage other, is in. I've got a couple other email addresses, yes. but I love using hotmail <laughs> yeah. because it's like I've been around a long time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And you your website? Yeah. My website is belindagore.com. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much.